This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome to Garden of Sound, brought to you by Go Live Festival. I'm Ian Turner. My guest this week is Chris van der Heer of New Zealand musical luminaries, Stella. Before we get started today, just invite you to subscribe to the show so you don't miss one second of the action. Just head to gardenofsound.nz and you can choose your favourite podcast provider from there. Okay, Chris van der Heer. Started out with alt-rock band Second Child and found even greater success with Stella. He's also an award-winning engineer and producer and co-founded Big Pop, where he runs production studios, a record label and a music publishing company. So, what's left to conquer in New Zealand music for this exceptionally talented man? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Chris van der Heer on Plains FM 96.9. Chris, have you got a first musical memory? I remember as far as relationship to music and songs, I do remember at about six or seven hearing ABBA actually on um, on TV at the time and kind of just liking the actual melody, the songs, you know, sort of going, this is catchy and, and sort of sing along and something about that melodic nature of that. Um, Any standouts, standout ABBA tracks for you? Um, standout. Um, know Me, No News a goody. As far as, uh, you know, a okay. bit of an epic thing. I mean, an interesting band, you know, so so very pop and melodic, but, you know, so much obviously in that 70s style. And then I do remember sort of, yeah, sort of playing a tennis racket along, wanting to, you know, play guitar to Bjorn or whatever his name was, the guitar player. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was kind of definitely, when I was that young, I remember kind of there was some attraction to music. And we always had a piano at home. Um, my mother was a great pianist and a great organist. And um, so we had an upright piano. Um, and actually, probably my first musical relatable thing I did was when I was about 18 months old, mother was in the kitchen and I climbed up on the piano stool, up onto the piano, and um, mm. she had a pile of music books on top of the piano and a vase on top of that. And I pulled the music books down, the vase smashed on the floor, and I fell um, face down on top of the vase. So I've got a, I've been scarred on my face since um, about 18 months. So that oh, was, that geez. was probably, there you go, that's probably my first musical musical interaction with an instrument which didn't go so well but um yeah but it didn't put you off music no it didn't and i kind of um yeah from that sort of early age i remember you know as a kid the yeah like stuff like the abba and bay city rollers even on seven or eight you know hearing sort of zedium and hodaki and stuff and then um it was about nine i think i and i wanted to play guitar from an early age probably when i was about eight or something and and Basically, my mum said, look, your hands are a bit small at the moment and you have to do piano before you do guitar. So she kind of made me do piano, which I kind of, you know, I, I didn't hate. I saw it a means to an end to get to guitar. So mm. I did a couple of years of piano lessons. And actually, I love the piano as an instrument. And um, like a lot of people who stopped it, I sort of um, wish I had kept. Classical, I'm presuming. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was kind of, yeah, pretty much classical. And then you know, I did um, yeah, a couple of years of that and then... Probably yeah, eleven or twelve. I started learning classical guitar. Okay. Um, which so kind of just yeah, full classical pieces, sight reading stuff, and again did that for a couple of years, and mm. then um, I think I sold my BMX and bought electric guitar. Fantastic. And, um, and that was kind of and since I had electric guitar, I mean, by this stage I was very much focused in on 
pop music as such. Mm. Um, what sort of acts things like, at that age? Oh, I, mean, I remember if that's 11 and 12, even that young age, just things like Prince's 1999 album. Yep. Um, Michael Jackson's Thriller, those sort of big things. There's but been a lot of pop young, in your life. It really has, you yeah. know, but you get, and there's sort of things that I remember as a, you know, very young listener, you know, like when Bowie and Queens Under Pressure came came mm-hmm. out, which was a fantastic song. My sister and I listened to a lot of music. She, and she was great. She sort of, I mean, she was this thing like Dire Straits, but yep. also listened to a lot of Bowie and um, Split Ends at the time and very much got into sort of, yeah, Split ends and mockers and exponents, sure. like the exponents a lot. The Presby Anson album was at that stage, and I think that was in some ways also a, and that style and some of the other music coming at the time, you know, Ice House and things were kind of suddenly that interest in what, you know, distinctly of new wave pop punk or post punk rather, and new wave sort of um, things sparked interest too. That I think there was something. I sort of gravitated towards in those those sort of styles. So I was, you know. Playing acoustic guitar, classical guitar, still at this point, and then, and probably when I was about yeah, 12, 13, I sort of then started listening to Simple Minds, U2, mm-hmm. um, and again that all stemmed from post punk, you know, and and you know that really really resonated me with those sort of acts and that style of playing, I think, and 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 then from that stage on, I sort of stopped classical guitar, started playing electric, had had electric lessons for a few years. Um, but Tom was in third form and fourth form. I'd sort of, one of my best mates sort of talked him into playing bass. So he, he would get bass lessons. Yep. And we um, eventually sort of formed a band. And in this stage, it was very much situated a lot of punk and post punk and original stuff at that stage. Started writing things, riffs and, and songs straight away. So, what were the aspirations? At that point, was it just to play music, or did you want to be famous? Very much just playing music. There's something that was... I remember even when I was about six or seven on the piano before I even took piano lessons, um, and this was more of a, you know, not wasn't really a musical thing, but I did see all the mother's music books up on the piano, and I actually mm. just drew, drew out a musical stave and, and just drew notes okay. And got her to play it for me, you know, and not knowing what it was or how it would sound, but yeah. And then so even from yeah, the early age, when as soon as I got my electric, I started basically writing and wanting to create original music. It wasn't a, isn't it? Yeah, not really a drive to, at that stage or a vision of what that would achieve, but it sure. was a, a really interesting outlet and wanting just to write. I didn't, I didn't really. There's a, I mean, even um, my first bands, we would cover a few songs. You know, it might be. I think we tried a couple of U2 tracks, and yeah. but later on we're doing things like Pills, Public Image, and okay. um, some Sex Pistols, and got into a lot of English punk, and and and, and at the time of the post punk and Gothic, very much got in had went through a big Gothic stage of mm. very early on from very important stuff for me formatively and music wise was sort of um, Kira and the Banshees and Mary Chain. Um, there was the attraction of sort of angular energy that all those acts had. You know, it was. And especially, you know, things like Cure and the Mary Chain and Bunnymen, all there's a, you know, there's a great melodic nature to the music and riffs and the and the vocal melodies. But there was a sort of, you know, an, an interesting angle of how they're doing it as opposed to straight top forty music. But mm. you know, I think that um, even the whole sort of eighties new wave electro sort of era, there's there's some fantastic music and and you know, and it, I think those formative years um, as a teenager are, are probably almost uh, embedded with you forever sure. as far as influences and, and your relationship with music, you know. 
what was your first recording experience? I mean, it could have been at home with the you know double cassette deck or whatever. It was on a basically a little a Sony Ghetto Blaster, yep. which I had bought for two hundred dollars off Trade and Exchange from a milk run, I think. It was, and literally that like I just played stuff, recorded on that, and then later when a couple of mates in third form, you know, bass player and, and another guy was doing a bit of vocal stuff, just recording yeah. that onto yeah. that and sort of listening back to it and. Yeah. Um, and so that was the start of it. And then sort of early second child um, times, we we did a couple of four-track recordings, you know. Um, at that stage, it was never convenient or easy, but... How early was that in second child? What sort of year are we I'd talking? I'd say that we're probably talking 85, 86. Okay. I um, I was, yeah, I was sort of... In, I started second child when I was... I think I might have been fifth form. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I had um, yeah, Paul Barmer, who was a one of my best mates and he, yep. he's the one I talked to him playing bass and then we had Luke Casey on drums and um, you know Luke, Luke was playing with Albino Slug who turned into Spud um, which were a great sort of noise grindy flying yep. nun act yeah. um, he was playing with, he was a brilliant drummer he was a few years younger than us I was, I was doing vocals at this stage um, I was doing a few covers and writing stuff but I was um, really just wanted to play guitar so he brought Damien Binder along who, who he went to school with yep. and Damien couldn't really sing. Damien liked a lot of the music that I liked and had a great energy and yep. great confidence. Um, and he was a perfect frontman for what we were doing at the time. So yeah. I sort of, at that stage, stepped back and just, I just wanted to play guitar a lot. You know, that was kind of my thing. It is time to play some music. Um, and we talked about a bunch of influences which seem uh, very pop themed. Um, you've also talked post punk uh, at least, but we're going to hear a track from The Cult. And this comes off Love from, from Memory. She Sells Sanctuary, which I see as almost an early dance track in a way, or maybe that was the the remaster or the revitalization of What Do You Like About The Cult? I think that sort of even pre-Love album, Love's a brilliant rock album in a way that it kind of, and it kind of transformed them from um, being an alternative post-punk act into more of a commercial rock act in the same way that... um, Killing Jokes, Love Like Blood did it at a similar time, you know. Um, and the Love album's great. And, and She Sells Sanctuary, I remember watching Rad the Pictures and it was such a great video and, you know, they're still quite gothy looking. I yeah. was going through, you know, very much listening to a lot of gothic music. Yeah. What was deemed gothic. And um, Billy Duffy's such a great guitar player. It's a brilliant guitar line riff. And I think the... But just, it was great production as well. So it's a combination of all those things. And, I'd, and previous to the Love album, I'd listened to the Southern Death Cult EPs and the Death Cult, so which is very much um, situated in more definitely more left post punk mm. um, in, in terms of Billy Duffy's guitar style, and I think he got more prime elaborate and effect work wise on the Love album, and then you know then they moved on to being ACDC and got electric and going through all that space, and he's such a great guitar player. But yeah. Yeah, She's Our Sanctuary is more epitomizes the Love album, and I think that kind of combination of a great sounding song and and guitar work that. Um, is influenced a lot by came out of a, a, a punk post-punk ethic, but um, had, had been refined and, and, and had moved on and progressed.
This is the Gardener Sound interview with Chris Van de Geer on Plains FM 96.9. I pronounce your name correctly, Chris? That's correct. I won't, go and, I won't make you do the uh, Dutch pronunciation. Oh, no, please, is, please. Um, I like no. it. Life's a learning game. Well, it's actually meant to be Vandagheer, but... Vandagheer. Oh, there you go. All right, Vandagheer. That's actually pretty... I think, please discard the Van de Geer, I will. everyone does, and I do myself anyway. Oh, no, I think when the Go Live Festival industry talks come up, I will try to throw that out and... I would expect a, a wry smile from you at least, uh, even if I do screw up the pronunciation. It's a twofer for you coming up uh, on the uh, 23rd of July, the second day of the Go Live Festival, as you are appearing at the Industry Talks, and you'll be talking about what you're uh, up to, one of your many irons in the fire, um, and in the evening you will be performing, uh, of course, with Stella, which will be very exciting. But just at this point in time, I want to talk about uh, the publishing uh, side of things sure uh, you own work for run big pop and what does big pop yes do? big pop does a lot of things actually big pop um i'm a co-owner managing director with um Jose langveld who's a very dear friend of mine we've been working together running big pop for a long time now um it is a music studio production facility mm. um we have a record label Mm-hmm. Big Pop Records, mm-hmm. and we'll soon be start another entity on the label side as well. And we also run Big Pop Music Publishing. Okay. On the studio side, we sort of just do general music recording with music yep. artists. So we're talking original artists coming into to record, yep. and and production music as well. Yeah, we do do that. We do um, yeah a lot of sort of commercial based production music, and we do some TV post production. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people doing stuff on the music mm-hmm. music studio production side, and then yeah, the label and publishing side. We started probably about six years ago, um, and just been mm-hmm. building that up slowly and growing those two sides a lot over the last couple of years. So just tell me, what does the record label do? What does a publisher do? Easy way to look at it. There's two sides to music, and there is the master side and there is the publishing side. Master, in its purest sense, is about that physical recording of the song that the artist has done. Um, and so a label's job, if it is sort of all involved, mm. um, will be a lot, and this is what we handle a lot, especially with our younger artists, is um, what they call A&R, A&R, which is artist and repertoire. So mm-hmm. it's looking after the artist from the very outset when they might come to us with a demo and we might work with them on that song of mm. some ideas conceptually of you know rearranging, writing, um, letting them explore where they are going as an artist, developing their vision as an artist of, okay, well, yes, you've got the song, but who are you? What are you? What do you want to achieve out of music? Um, what is it, what's your musical journey want to be? You know, Are you serious about being an artist or you just want to get something out and, or do you, is your goal to be on the radio? What is it? So it's, it's sort of breaking down, in essence, for each individual artist what their drive and motivation is and... As we sort of go further on, you sort of try and work with artists that align with many of those visions of achievement because the more you can tick off, the more chance you have of progression. Um, okay. If, if you just want to make a song and release a song, that's that's pretty easy. But to, it's you know it's it's very hard work on the master side to make it work um, from both an artist level and a label level. So we, it's generally a long process. We don't try and rush it. We try and. Mm get people to slow things down and be patient to get, um, you know, even things like this sort of artwork and visual vision of who they are aligned and perfect before you launch and release things and and work out a release plan, is it for 
three singles over a year? Is it you want to release an album straight away? What, what, what is that? So we sort of work with artists on all that aspect, and that is even, you know, right through or even pre-recording process. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there is the actual uh, physically finishing the recording, which, again, we fully involved with on the studio side and even sometimes hands-on on production mixing side. And then there is releasing and post-release, and that you know, that is obviously involves very much of what you'll call marketing, you know, how okay. to get that song out to the world, how to get listeners um, to hear that song and to engage in the artist and to adopt that artist and follow that artist. I imagine you have set channels and ways to do that. Yes, yeah, okay. um, and various team members are working on that side, and sure. obviously... Very much a social media game in terms of marketing now, so that's obviously a big focus. Traditional media's shrunk, so things yeah. like normal publications and outlets are far less. Yep. Um, so it's been strategic about where you look at, at promoting yourself or where we look at promoting the artist. Um, are they ready for any offshore promotion? Are we going to engage publicity companies in, in Australasia or US or UK for this artist, or is that going to be in two albums' time? And that all, yeah, it has to be seen very much looked at as a case by case basis. We don't, you don't operate on a sort of cook, cookie cutter scenario of thinking okay. this model of how we release a song is going to be done the same for everybody. It's very different. The way artists work are very different. Have you got any um, success stories from Big Pop? Um, I think probably one of our most high profile artists is um, the artist Chai, who loosely can be described as a hip hop artist, but I, you know she's far more. Um, interesting and evolved in just that. She's very focused, very driven, very creative. You know, we've had a lot of success on the publishing sync side with her, with sort of placements into things like Apple iPhone, commercials internationally, um, okay. new Marvel, Netflix series, other Netflix um, movie placements, um, FIFA, PlayStation game placements. Amazing. So, um, and she's currently um, in writing mode for a new album. Okay. So that's kind of where that particular project's at. We've had other artists which are just released um, an EP by a young, I guess you'd call them indie band called Evening is Youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a five-track EP that's come out. I've been working with them for a long time. but it's um, And then we'll be releasing another EP with them later in the year. We have a lot of younger artists like Timmy the First, who's a, a great rap hip-hop artist who's um, moved up from Dunedin um, yep. uh, recently to Auckland. So we're working more closely with them now. Yeah. Plenty of artists around. A lot of them are, yeah, you'd certainly call in the emerging development stage. Tell me about publishing. As we talked about the two sides, so we, we discussed that master side, and that's very much what the record label looks after and, and involves the physical recording and your outlets like Spotify and Apple Music is mm. where the master lives. Um, publishing, in, in a basic essence, is about the IP of just the song, you know, and, you know, that that is what a song is, is can be viewed differently by people, but... If traditionally that song might be the basic chords, the lyrics and the melody of that song, mm-hmm. whether there's a full band or fully programmed beats behind it, those things in essence make up the song. As productions become more synonymous as part of the writing process, those parts and production stuff can sometimes steep into being publishing, but publishing is to look after the song and the rights in the song. Is this what you're talking about on selling the song? to use in video games or TV series. Yeah, that's, and that's called synchronisation, where you're syncing okay. music with pictures or for yep. a use like that. And and that's on the publishing side. 
that is publishing side and you're finding opportunities for that song. Right. It does involve the recording, but really it could be, as you, you know, everyone's probably aware, sometimes you might hear a, um, I think there was a recent um, bank ad in the last year or two, um, which had a piano female vocal version of um, Bowie's Changes. Yeah. Uh, depending on when you are listening to this uh, interview, potentially it could be tomorrow, Christchurch. Uh, to Pi Convention Centre Industry Talks, uh, free to attend. You can hear a whole heap more from uh, Chris and a, a rogues gallery of those who know the biz inside out. More music. Uh, we talked about Under Pressure, um, but now we're going to talk about David Bowie and Heroes. What do you like about Heroes, Chris? You know, it's a, a Bowie's a, obviously a, you know, one of those... One of the, or was one of the greatest classic artists in the history of modern music. Mm-hmm. And I remember, especially my sister was listening to a lot of Bowie when I was around about that sort of 10, 11 and Ashes to Ashes and all that period and, and listening to Heroes then. And I remember it as a song that I really liked being that young as well. I think melodically there's something that I really like. I remember mm. actually even going to, a, um, I think, my intermediate ball dance thing and there was a covers band there who played it as well and you know and even seeing a covers band doing it was was great you know yeah um i think as a song it's like the it's got an incredibly strong powerful vocal where where bowie steps up um in that sort of later period in the song the guitar works great with frip sort of in the using the ebo and it's actually it's, it's weird it's such a massive hit but i mean at its essence it's a very interesting track it's not a um a syrupy polite commercial track there is a a lot of emotion in it um and a lot of interesting parts and work in it um and i think probably yeah again that sort of era of when it was done which i think was 77 or something it's sort of i think that that song um and and probably and also the low album of bowie sort of very much had quite a big influence on new wave and post-punk Mm. As far as style and approach and, and the combination of what you call art, rock or art punk, merging. Just for one 
is the Garden of Sound interview with Chris Vander here on Plains FM 96.9. Rock your winter with Go Live, Christchurch's Winter Music Festival, Friday, July 22nd and Saturday 23rd at the Christchurch Town Hall. Over 18 artists, live across two nights on five stages. Get your tickets now at premier.ticketech.co.nz. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Chris 
Vinda here on Plains FM 96.9. Um, second child, you said you kicked off 85, 86 or, or thereabouts, sort of mid, yeah. mid, mid high school. When was your first proper album? First proper album, we I think we actually recorded it in 89. Wow. So between that period of 85, 86, 87, 88, around all that period, we were just, you know, writing, playing and practicing in the garage. But we got... We sort of got involved in that sort of more gothy punk scene in Auckland. We started playing at uni, Unicaf gigs in mm. the um, Beach Hotel downtown and um, would put on gigs with um, other acts at you know community halls, just hiring a PA. And mm. so we started, there was a scene going on then at the time. We sort of became part of that. Um, and so we were playing live a lot as well through the whole period while we were writing. And then we went and did some demos at um, Progressive Studios in Auckland mm. and... I think one of them got a little bit of play on BFM. Yep. I think it was probably about 80, 89 and certain flat I was living in, very musical focused of, and, and people in other bands, but there was a good scene going on um, and with a, you know, a, a another flat at the time, they had a lot of friends and Matthew Heine was, sort of became a friend and he was working at BFM as an engineer, mm-hmm. um, as a commercial production engineer, but we went up and did um, about three, eight track, on eight track there, three demos with him um, his second child, and I think two of those sort of got a lot of play on BFM and sort of went to number one on the BFM top 10 sort of thing and mm. playing more gigs around the glue pod and started supporting acts like, you know, sort of Bowder Space and, and again, sort of just a lot of live playing to grow a, a, an organic following. And mm. then we went into the lab studios up in Simon Street in Auckland and recorded with Matthew Heine um, basically a seven-track, so a mini-album called Magnet, which came out on vinyl and cassette. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until, I think, 91 it was actually released. We started talks with um, Murray Kamek at Wildside Records. And Murray Kamek, of course, started and was running Rip It Up. Rip It Up magazine, yes. It was absolutely fantastic publication. Um, but yeah, we started talking to Murray, and he, he kind of just really liked the energy of what we're doing and, and the slightly sort of abstract nature of what we're doing. Mm. Um and he, it was a long process, but at the time, organising artwork and vinyl and, and Wildside was obviously just a small independent with Murray trying to do everything. Mm. Um, and so we worked with him and Kirk G, who worked for Rip It Up, he sort of became our de facto manager at the time, mm. was also working with Murray. So yeah, the Magnet album came out in 91. Um, we also appeared as, on a Freak the Sheep compilation album as well yep. that um, Lisa van der Aarde put out. So that was kind of around about the same time, and that was 91. And then just further, yeah, a lot of further playing around that, that period. But that was the first actual release as Second Child. There is a very good interview on the Audio Culture website, and there's a section in there where it talks about, we were paraphrasing here, we were we were little shits who didn't sort of listen to others or something along those lines, and we played some very complicated songs and we'd often play one chorus and not want to go back to it or something. Was there a moment between the first album and the second album where something clicked or someone told you or gave you a kick in the arse and said, if you want to be popular, you need to straighten up your songs? A lot of that was driven a bit by Damien, you know, because that, that, that sort of early period, that late 80s and 90s, um, you know, very much embedded and listened to a lot of alternative music. So yep. I was definitely uh, not wanting to conform. Be, yeah, not to want to conform at the time, and yeah, definitely to our detriment, I'd say. But um, and it was more a case. I mean, through that period, even late '80s, started listening to less English music and more American, exciting time in American music with um, you know, things like Pixies and Dinosaur Junior, 
big Damon and I big Husker Du fans and mm. they all came from punk as such but you know they're all very melodic bands at heart mm. too though mm. you know you you deem them you know all had a, a pop and a alt nature but there was melodic writing and melodic riffs as well so there was I think a gradual always liked that melodic popness and stuff as well just like the energy and the abstract nature of what post-punk and alt music was so a lot of that late 80s american combined the two and you know and something like obviously Nevermind nirvana was a a rock great rock album that actually again big crossover point mm. where an album that a year earlier would be deemed mm. alternative grunge rock was yeah. became a massive mainstream rock record by the time we actually did the slinky album which i think we started recording in 95 we'd mm. done the single um, Holdback um, in 93, maybe. And that, to me, I, I struggled with that a bit because Damien had been doing a lot of singing lessons at this point, so he'd become more controlled in his singing and, and Damien, you know, he'd started listening to a lot of more classic writers like Springsteen and Dylan as well. Um, so I think all that started creeping into our, you know, the songwriting process for me and Damien. Um, and Holdback was definitely a bit of a shift point where it was had a lot of sort of poppiness in it at least for us anyway. And then I think another year and a half later we went and did the Crumble single, which again had a, had a lot more melodic elements in the, in the way Damien and I were writing at the time. It was more traditional of him and I sitting down writing chords, riffs and the vocal parts um, and taking them to the band as opposed to, I'd often prior to that bring in riffs and jam them with the band and Damien okay. jam vocals over the top. Yep. So the writing process had changed. Um, okay. And that resulted in what those releases. And by the time we did Slinky, I think this naturally developed further. Okay. In a way. You think that's just maturity? Yeah, I think I think it is. Yeah, it is kind of. And also, yeah, there's a point where, as I say, I mean, when I go back to as a younger kid and things like ABBA or listen to Michael Jackson or Prince. Yeah. Um, or even a lot of the a lot of the real poppy new wave. Yep. Whether it's Billy Idol or um, or Ice House or yeah. orchestral moves in the dark or Visage, all that stuff. Yeah. There's a real you know, some great songs and popness in there. So I think it was just returning to that. It's just a change in maturity. You naturally change through your musical journey, really. Where do you stand on Garbage? I love Garbage. I think they're a great act. You know, they're kind of... I was a big, massive fan of Butch Vig, um, of his work, Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and stuff. And when saw Garbage sort of mid... Probably in 96 or something mm. when they first came over, or 95, I can't remember when that was. Mm. I'd gone to an industry after party and ended up talking to Butch Vig at a bar for a couple of hours on on the garbage records Brilliant. and how they were made and yeah. I think it was a great to me a great combination of I could see he had a lot of influences I guess where I did as well of that sort of eighties yep. post punk and and eighties electronica like New Order and you know OMD all that sort of stuff coming into it as well so and I love the combination of sort of a bit more of an American alt take on that and industrial nature of it and um, and great production so yeah I th- you know. Definitely, and we went on to you know, went on to support them in later years as Stella um, mm. a few years later. But um, yeah, I think they're a great act. All right, it is time to hear some of this awesome stuff off Slinky. This from Second Child is words to say. Shiver that 
is the Garden of Sound interview with Chris van der Heer on Plains FM 96.9 Go Live Festival Uh, well it's happening tonight Uh, it's also happening tomorrow night 23rd of July and uh, uh, Stella uh, with the asterisk why the asterisk? it was really just no there was no real point behind (laughs) it I I got my memory of it is I think we actually did a a, may have been just a design element that um, that um, Wayne Conway added on our first single okay. and it just kind of stuck. Okay. Actually, there was, yeah, we like it as design. That was no a, T's and C's. Nothing else behind that. No. Uh, that first album of yours, um, because I am interested in the production side at least, uh, also produced alongside you guys by, by Tom Bailey. How did that come about? Um, that came, the connection came through Malcolm Black, who was A&R um, at Sony and is, he's since very sadly passed away. He's a very remarkable man. 
Um, but he, Tom Bailey and Alana were living in New Zealand by this point. Um, Malcolm was had started Sony's A&R. We'd started talking about the record and, you know, he knew where we'd come from as artists and writers and musical taste and thought a chat with Tom would be a great idea. And it turned out he was totally correct. We mm. had a dinner out with him just talking about the love of music and of those great records, especially of the 80s, um, including some of the works he's done with Thompson Twins and mm. other production. And we just sort of had it off as people, you know. We, we sort of, um, you know, he's a great guy. Um, and we're extremely lucky to have him involved on the album. You know, he certainly brought, um, or brought a whole new element to sure. to the record, to the sound and our approach to it. We'd sort of, we were very much ready to, all of us, um, you know, along with Kurt, um, Bo and Andrew had all been sort of, you know, very much involved in the alt guitar thing. So, sure. you know, on a production level, as an engineer producer, I was really ready to, I'd already been doing a lot of different stuff on the studio side and, and different realms. Um, you know, and Andrew, Bo and Kurt, everyone was real ready just to um, incorporate new sounds. And, you know, there's sure. a mass love of that sort of interesting 90s and 80s programming side. And yeah. luckily... This coincided at the time with Tom's interest in working with us too. It's sort of something we we're ready to move on, and it was just a great merging of 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 people at the time for that album. Twenty three years since Mix. What's it like playing the tracks these days? I actually love it. We've sort of been the last few years. We're doing a lot of, especially summer festival sort of thing. Yeah. Obviously, with with uh, interruptions for obvious reasons in the last yeah. two years. But it's great just to we're generally playing to an audience that are receptive to the songs and, yeah. and you realise more, you know, there is a legacy with it and it's it's actually, I think we're really enjoying playing on stage together mm. again. It's, mm. um, we're playing well together. We're yes. enjoying it. So it's, I'm actually, you know, it's, I'm you know, loving just heading away with the band. We get to hang out, yeah. eat some food together, yeah. drink together and then play some great music that we created together. So it's kind of, it's a very, I think, a very fortunate thing. And if you do want to see the amazing stellar you can tomorrow night uh, go live festival and during the day you can catch uh, Chris talking about publishing and all sorts of things to do with music at the go live industry talks um, Chris it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you today thank you so much for your for your time we do have to uh, head out with a stellar number um, what are we gonna what are we gonna hear well I picked um, slow burn which is off mix our first record um, it's a song that we did play live a lot of the early days after release of mix, but we haven't played live for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. But I love I love the kind of combination of, you know, again some of the guitar work stuff that we've talked about yeah. and, and great programming in it, and it's got a great mood. There's a real steadiness. It's just, yep. it's back in tempo, but it's got a real strident feel to it. Yeah, I just like it's got a you know, a slight good abstract industrial nature to it as well. Yeah. It's cool. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Take it from me There's a wall you can't breach With pretty words they sound absurd Like cheap philosophy I stepped through it clean And the scars show no
Okay, one extra track for you today. Chris talked about the group he's been working with for a while, Evening as Youth. Here's their latest single, I'm Glad I Left.
Thanks for listening to Garden of Sound today, and thanks to Chris for joining me. You can find out more about him and Big Pop by heading to gardenofsound.nz and clicking on Chris's photo on the front page. I'm Ian Turner, and this has been Garden of Sound, brought to you by Go Live Festival, happening tonight and tomorrow at the Christchurch Town Hall, with those free industry talks happening at Tapai tomorrow too. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing in the horror.